Grandpa pissed his pants again He don't give a damn Brother Billy has both guns drawn He ain't been right since Vietnam Sweet home Alabama Play that dead band song Turn those speakers up full blast Play it all night long Hello everyone and welcome to the Stephen King cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week I'll review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication. And this week what I'm doing, I am following up not on Stephen King, but I am following up on the second installment in Jonathan Madbury's Pine Deep Trilogy, which began with Ghost Road Blues, and this week I will be examining, like I said, the follow-up, Dead Man's Song, and then next episode I will look at the concluding installment of the trilogy, Bad Moon Rising. So for those of you who are tuning in to the first time, thank you for tuning into the Stephen King cast. Um, you might be a little confused why I'm reviewing another author. Well, uh, the reason is because of this. It is Halloween season as I record this. It is October 12th, so we are, uh, we're deep into the Halloween season, which to me begins in September. And uh, for a while now, for actually since nearly the beginning of the, the run of this podcast, I have been promising here and there that I would eventually get around to reviewing Madbury's Pine Deep Trilogy because it feels very much like classic Stephen King. There's just so many elements found in these books that are found within Stephen King's books, and it's very strong on character and setting, and we have charismatic villains, and just a lot of the qualities that draw us to Stephen King are definitely present in these books. Plus, it has the added uh, benefit of being very, very, very Halloween-y. It is a love letter to this season. It's a love letter to uh, this time of year. And uh, I, I'm just, I'm thrilled to have reread it for the purposes of this podcast, and I'm really looking forward to, uh, to um, discussing Dead Man's Song for this episode, and then I'm really looking forward to the next episode to, to wrapping everything up. So for those of you who are tuning in for the first time, please know that there are 140 episodes before this that you have a back catalog and uh, the majority of the episodes of the Stephen King cast are dedicated solely to Stephen King which I review the works in the chronological order of publication from Carrie all the way on up to uh, end of watch which is uh, at this time of recording it is the, the the latest thing that he has published and then you also have the added benefit of, of being able to listen to my review of, of some of his movies and deep dives into the, the Dark Tower mythology. So there, there's a lot for, for you to chew on if you're tuning in for the first time. And the reason I bring this up is because Stan Lee, the, the, the famous comic book writer and uh, legendary just comic book uh, presence and celebrity, um, always said that every issue... Uh, every comic book issue is always someone's first issue. So you have to do some sort of recap. You have to hook them and you kind of have to give context. So that's, that's, that's what I'm doing here because someone out there is listening to this for the first time. And I just want, uh, I want them to understand a, a very brief history of what the Stephen King cast has been. So start out as a review of all Stephen King's works. I did that with the exception of Colorado kid and blaze, um, and some of his, uh, 
novellas. Uh, but uh, but for the most part, I got through all of it. Uh, there's some top 10 episodes. There is a review of each episode of 11.22.63, which premiered on Hulu this past year. And uh, Netflix's Stranger Things, which very similarly to the Pine Deep trilogy, um, seems very rooted in, in Stephen King. So um, I've sort of branched out to uh, Stephen King-inspired works or Stephen King-similar works. Um but uh, but before I get any further down uh, down this particular path, I want to uh, lead everyone down a, a side a side trail that, that leads to my own um, writing because I, I have been lucky enough and I do believe that it is luck that I have been published this past year um, in six different publications, which is which is pretty awesome and, and hopefully uh, I'll have some more news over the next few weeks. Um, but I, I just kind of want to throw it out there in case anyone is interested. If you have listened to my thoughts on horror and other people's writing, um, if you're interested in, in, in reading my own writing. So I'm going to give you some options here. The, the latest you can find in uh, Ink Stains Volume 2. My short story included therein is entitled Spouse Swap, and it examines the, the blur between reality and unreality of a reality television show. Um, in the pages of Skeptics Must Die, you will find my short story, The Portrait, in which two inept ghost hunters uh, go to a uh, abandoned mansion that supposedly houses a haunted portrait and what happens then. You then have the short story Forget Me Not, which can be found in the, the pages of Trysts of Fate. Forget Me Not examines relationships in... Um, and our identities in relationships on, a, on an existential level. In the pages of Wax and Wayne, A Gathering of Witch Tales, uh, you'll find my short story Hopscotch. Hopscotch tells the tale of a 13-year-old girl and just the, the evil qualities of this particular 13-year-old girl and what happens when she bumps up into something that's a lot more dangerous than she. In the pages of Dark Moon Digest, issue number 22, you will find my short story Room 207, in which a husband is driving down south to... Uh, go to his in-laws funeral and tired from driving stops off at a motel um, he stays in the room 205 um, but the title of the uh, short story is room 207 so the question is what lies within room 207 in the pages of Nine Tales, Toll in the Dark, issue number nine, you will find my short story, This World Will Eat You All the Way Up, which tells the tale of two college friends who are in a road trip and are discussing um, a lot of unspoken secrets and what happens when the unspoken becomes the spoken. So those are my short stories that have been uh, that I've been lucky enough to have published um, at this minute. Hopefully there will be more news in the future and more short stories published in the future. And as soon as that happens, you will be the first to know. Up next, I just want to share some iTunes reviews because um, without iTunes, I mean the, the Stephen King cast would not have the the, the, the listenership that that it definitely does now. So if you haven't done so already, please, if you have a couple minutes, just head on over to, to iTunes um, and just leave a review. As of right now, I have 91 reviews. That's phenomenal. So I, I would love uh, to get to that 100 mark because that, that would be a, a huge uh, point of success. And the more reviews that I get, the more credible the, uh, the Stephen King cast looks in the iTunes library. So TikTok Man writes, Thank you, Cy. 
There have been two constants in my life from the time I was seven or eight years old, rock and roll and Stephen King. I was so happy to find your podcast. Thank you for these shows and your fantastic insight, and thank you to the greatest storyteller of our time. Great job, buddy. So TikTok man, first of all, great handle. Second of all, thank you for all the kind words. Vision at 619 writes, Wow, if you are not a fan of Stephen King's work, you will be after listening to this podcast. Get ready to dive into each book and want to go back and reread books to catch Kingisms for yourself. Amazing podcast, and I think the only other person who could talk about Stephen King's book in this depth is the man himself. So Vision at 619, thank you so much. Um, and for everyone listening, I, I hope that you are fans of Stephen King, um, because I think that you'll definitely get something out of this podcast. Uh, Forrester33 writes, Just found this podcast when I was looking for some SK interpretations while going back to the deep, dark wells of Stephen King books as they've always been for me. This is a great podcast with a thoughtful and diligent host that brings a lot of great analysis. Definitely got me to take a second look at some of SK novels I had thought of as second tier. Seriously, the Christine review was awesome. Was actually moved by his description of his first car. All in all, wonderful. Sorry I'm late to the party, but I'm glad to be here. P.S. The dogs in the background are great. So Forster33, thank you so much. Um, and thanks for that that Christine review. That one surprised me. Well, rereading Christine surprised me because I didn't realize just how much it was going to affect me because I had been um, I had been on your wavelength, and that's what I had thought, that I, cons I had considered it a second-tier novel until I reread it and, and understood exactly all the things that he was writing about. Um... And it, it definitely made me look back on my first car. And actually, after I read that review, I went back and I listened to the beginning of that episode, and it just took me down memory lane. So I'm glad that you could join me on that particular ride. That's that that's that's very, very complimentary, and I, I really appreciate that. Um, and guys, just so you know, the dogs are not with me right now. I just fed them. I put them outside. But sh sure enough, uh, I'll probably be bringing them in uh, inside uh, before the end of this podcast. So I'll let you know. But... You know, if, if I somehow forget, I'm sure that you will hear some snorting and sneezing and wheezing and grunting. Um, that's just them saying hi. Okay, up next, I have a listener email from Alex. And Alex writes, Dear Stephen King cast, parentheses, constant reader. I recently discovered your, your podcast off of iTunes, and I feel like a kid in a candy store. I'm a fellow fan of Stephen King, and I've been looking for something like this for a very long time. I have appreciatively downloaded most of your reviews, and eventually plan to download the rest. I was especially excited to see that you have a review for the regulators, and many others that a lot of people seem to pass by. I'm also forward looking, sorry, I'm also looking forward to listening to your reviews on the Dark Tower series. At first I was skipping around, but then I decided to listen to them in the order that you have set up. For the past week and a half, I've been trying to listen to every to one every day. It's perfect now with Halloween creeping around the corner. I just finished listening to a review of The Dead Zone last night. It's definitely helpful during those long car rides to and fro work. I was wondering if, in the future, you were planning on ever doing a review for Graveyard Shift and the movie, and also for Blaze? But if not, that's totally not a deal breaker for me. I'm a fan and I am grateful for the reviews that you have posted. Plus, I still have a lot more to listen to. You bring out a lot of great points and you go into great detail with each review. I especially love the Stephen Kingisms. 
Thank you very much for the time and the hard work that you've put into these amazing podcast reviews. Every time I listen to one of them, I am, I am inspired to reread that novel or short story or rewatch that movie or miniseries. Thank you, and thank you some more. Best, Alex from Connecticut. So, Alex, thanks for writing in. Thank you for all of the kind words. As I've said before in previous episodes, I understand the joy that comes from a, a beloved podcast and the feeling that you get when... You check your feed in the morning and, and you see that that podcast has come through and you just know that the ride to work, um, you're, you're going to be filling your car with the sound of someone that you have spent a lot of time with but have never met and will never meet, but but still, it's someone that you have spent a lot of time with. Um, I get that feeling. I, I totally get that feeling and getting that morning coffee and just settling into the day with a smile on your face because you're already off to a good start. So the the fact that I am able to do that for other people, if nothing else, this world can be tough at times. This world can be hard. A lot of people out there go to jobs that they just don't like and it's a slog. So to know that for a brief period of time i'm able to at least ease that a little bit that's awesome so alex just thank you for all the kind words um and as for future episodes just so everybody knows after my review of next episodes uh bad moon rising uh, there will be one more episode. I will review whatever uh, EW Pop Fest reveals for the Dark Tower movie. So for those of you who don't know, um, at the end of the month on October 29th, I believe, I believe that's the date, um, out in LA, uh, Entertainment Weekly is hosting something called Pop Fest. Seems to be a... Um, uh, an entertainment-based version of kind of like Comic-Con. Um, that's the kind of feeling that I'm getting from it. But uh, they have promised that they're going to reveal something from the Dark Tower. A lot of people are speculating that it's the trailer. I'm going to get to that in a second. Or maybe it's just a particular scene or footage, a sizzle reel. I, I don't know. I don't know what it's going to be. But um, I imagine that whatever it is, it's going to wind up online. And I will, at that time, once it comes out, I'll review it. Um, but after that, uh, the, the podcast will go on a hiatus just like I had taken in April. Um, so from about April to, to June, I, I, didn't, uh, I didn't really put anything out because you know my, my daughter had just been born and I had gone through the first phase of the, the King cast and I, I just didn't really, I, I just needed a break and I needed to spend time with my wife and my daughter and live my life. Um, so I'm going to be taking another hiatus um, after my reviews of these books and after whatever that, whether it's a trailer or the footage. Um, and then, you know, if there is big Dark Tower news, then I'll probably do a recording. Or if they drop a, a secret It teaser, I'll probably, you know, hop on the microphone and talk about that. Um, so I just kind of want to prepare everyone for that. But I'm not going away. Um, I'm just going to be taking another break eventually in the future i do hope to get around to blaze i do hope to getting around to the colorado kid maybe doing some cleanup on some of the short story collections that i never did the first time around um yeah and sure i mean i i would love to review graveyard shifts um and the movie that that could be fun um as well as sleepwalkers could be fun i i've watched cell um, and I said that I've watched Cell, so you guys don't have to, but I, I never got around to, to recording that review because I don't really want to revisit the experience of sitting through that. 
Uh, but so there's definitely there's definitely stuff that 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 I I can do. Um, so that that's the good thing about having some a little bit of gaps here and there in the short story collections and the novellas and a, a good chunk of the movies that I, I I haven't touched. So there there's options out there. I can't promise one way or another. But uh, but I I will be taking a hiatus, and then you know I mean throughout the year I mean there will be there will be episodes and you know just follow me on on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and I'll definitely be be giving updates. Uh, but but Alex and uh, everyone that has written in thank you. So with all of that out of the way, what I'm going to do now I'm going to switch gears and um, I'm not going to talk about Stephen King anymore. I'm going to talk about Jonathan Maverick. I'm going to talk about uh, the Pine Deep trilogy that that he wrote in the in the early 2000s. Uh, so, as I stated in my last review, I found the Pine Deep trilogy at the exact right time. Sometimes in life, the the right book hits you at the right time, right? So it and I met. I mean, the, the Stephen King novel, It and I Met at the Right Time. And similarly, um, this particular book, not Ghost Road Blues, but Dead Man's Song. Dead Man's Song and I, we met at the right time. It was a beautiful summer. I just wanted a good book to read during the summer. Um, I just wanted to just feel like I was a teenager again um, and, and just read a book and just get sucked in. I just wanted to get sucked in. And I found Dead Man's Song. The cover struck me. It just looked like a fun, ghost, spooky story. And I, like I said in my last episode, I just roamed through Barnes & Noble. I haunted the fiction section and I just went up and down the rows and I, I looked at all of the, the selections that they had to offer. And I, like I said, I was judging books by its cover. So thank you to whoever created that cover because it did stand out to me. Those particulars spoke to the colors spoke to me and <clears throat> the picture of the farmhouse, uh, with the lightning <coughs> spoke to me. And, um, I said, yeah, I'll do this. And, uh, I got home, <coughs> excuse me, I got home and um, started reading it and realized that I was missing something here, that this was the second part of something, so I wound up getting Ghost Road Blues, and I fell in love with this town, I fell in love with the characters, and uh, it is now, uh, for the purposes of this podcast, this is now the third time I've spent time in Pine Deep uh, with these characters, and it's a blast every time. So the reason why I am reviewing these books right now is because it is such a great love letter to Halloween. Stephen King never wrote us the definitive Halloween story. I know that Ray Bradbury has something wicked this way comes, um, but Stephen King has never given us his, his definitive version. So thankfully for us, we have Jonathan Maberry who wrote three novels, not just one book, but an entire trilogy of novels that feel very reminiscent of, of Stephen King. And I, I do want to say that, you know, even though I'm praising this man for being able to be invocative of the stylings of another writer, he brings his own strength and he brings his own perspective to, to these novels as well. So for instance, <coughs> in the last episode, I, I reviewed the, the, the portion of the, the novel um, that, that detailed some very, very strong action scenes. The action scenes in these novels are unparalleled. I've never seen Stephen King be able to write a fight scene or an action scene quite like this. So uh, 
you know, Jonathan Maverick, you know, I, I just don't want anyone to think that I like him just because it's reminiscent of Stephen King. I like him because he's a good writer. I like him because he hooked me with his characters and his setting and his wonderful, wonderful descriptions um, with imagery. It's fantastic. You feel as though you're there. It's everything that you want out of a book. And if you're listening to the Stephen King cast and you love Stephen King, then you're definitely, I promise you 100%, you will enjoy these books. So actually, if you have not read Dead Man's Song, you need to stop listening right now. Go on to Amazon, uh, download it to your Kindle or have it shipped to you whatever your predilection is, um, and just enjoy it. Enjoy it as the leaves are turning and falling, as the air is getting getting crisp. Um, sit down with some apple pie. Uh, put on your favorite sweater. Cuddle up under your, your, your favorite um, blanket and just enjoy this love letter to Halloween. You will not be disappointed. I promise you guys, I promise you, please go out and support this author who deserves your time and attention because you're not going to find a better tribute to Halloween. I promise you. So this novel has two primary functions. Um, on one hand, Maberry designs it in a way in which he allows himself to explore the ramifications of the events of the first novel while simultaneously setting up the plot and developing the plot in order to um, create the the payoffs that are going to occur in the third book, Bad Moon Rising. So the the challenge for for Maberry heading into this book is he could have very easily um, had this function as the I don't know middle child I guess of the of the the three books, getting the the least amount of love, um, never feeling like it quite fits. But thankfully. Dead Man's Song is, is really good because it allows us to take a breath and Maberry really goes in detail exploring this town and letting us really exist in this town. So he did a great job at setting everything up in the first book. He does a fantastic job at paying everything off in the last. And in the meantime, we get to just spend time with Crow as he heals and Val as she grieves and her family as they break apart and splinter from one another. He does a great job at showing how the, the Guthries just completely shatter in, in the aftermath of the death of their father. And this once great family is reduced by the end of this novel to only Val, which is tragic. Um, but that sort of tragedy is needed. So not only do we get the the aftermath of the, the the first book but he also takes us back in time and gives us the 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 events that that kicked all of this off 30 years before with the pine deep reaper aka ubel griswold the werewolf who cut a swath of of terror through the town when um well, we learn about exactly what happened. There was an unforeseen blight that was not supernatural. It was just nature. And Ubel Griswold on his farm, he he bred cows so that he could eat when he needed to as a werewolf. And then once the blight hit and the cows died, um, his hunger wouldn't be satiated. So he turned to the town and uh, began eating the townspeople that included... Uh, Terry's sister and Crow's brother and others. And uh, the effects of this are, are still being felt today. 
We get more with Mike Sweeney as he begins to undergo his change. We learn that he is a dampier, um, a half-human, half-vampire, as a result of some supernatural tinkering that had occurred 14 years before. We learn a lot about Terry, and I can't wait to get into this because I'll be discussing Terry at length. But we see Terry at his best, and we see him at his absolute worst. Um, but when we see him at his best, makes me realize that I, I wish that Madbury had tinkered with the narrative just a little bit to, to see us before he had begun to crack under the pressure. Because when we first meet him, he's definitely not running at full capacity. He's under uh, the, the strain of the, the weight of responsibility of leadership leadership um, of this town and the, the growing insanity from dealing with the fact that there's a monster living inside him. But we that would have been more powerful if we had seen him when he was just a man uh, before that. So I'll be talking about Terry a lot. And then we, uh, we get to know some characters that we didn't spend a lot of time with in the first book, Saul Weinstock and uh, the reporter Newton. Uh, and, and we wonder what the, the role that these characters will play uh, is, is a lot of fun. And, you know, Madbury continues to expand our, our band of heroes and our band of monsters with the, uh, the, the, the rebirth of, of Kenneth Boyd who um, had died in the previous book but is resurrected as a mindless zombie vampire that is just like a just a, a gorilla with fangs basically and and just tears his way through anything that's in his path and it's it's terrible and it's tragic and it's frightening and and that's the thing is that this book has some truly frightening moments that is that is just so so enjoyable to read especially at this time of year for halloween you're, you're not going to be disappointed i guarantee you that you will not be disappointed at all so this book has it all oh and and he he reveals to us that um this uh this particular sequence is building up towards Friday the 13th, which it just makes it the, the unluckiest month for the, 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 the residents of, of Pine Deep. And I just love the fact that Friday the 13th falls in this uh, apocalyptic and cosmic uh, uh, you know, sequence of events here on Pine Deep. So all in all, guys, great, great, great great entry in this uh in this series and uh here we go it's time for the review okay guys with the summary out of the way what i will be doing i'm gonna be jumping in and providing a running commentary as Maberry tells his tale so prologue the guthrie farm so this is how it begins guys this is how it begins it was October when it happened. It should always be October when these things happen. In October, you expect things to die. In October, the sun shrinks away. It hides behind mountains and throws long shadows over small towns like Pine Deep. Especially towns like Pine Deep. The wind grows new teeth and it learns to bite. The colors fade from deep summer greens to the mournful browns and desiccated yellows of autumn. In October, the harvest blades are honed to sharpness, and that's when the sickles and the scythes, the threshers and the combines, maliciously attack the fields, leaving the long stalks of corn lying dead in haphazard piles along the beaten rows. 
pumpkin growers come like headsmen to gather the gourds for the carver's knives, the insects so alive during the long months of July, August, and September die in their thousands, their withered carcasses crunching under the feet of children hurrying home from school, children racing to beat the fall of night. Children do not play outdoors in the nights of Pine Deep. There are shadows everywhere, even in the places they have no right to be. The shadows range from the purple haze of twilight streets to the utter bottomless black in the gaping mouths of sewers. Some of the shadows are cold, featureless, just blocks of lightless air. Other shadows seem to possess an unnatural vitality. They seem to roil and writhe, especially as the young ones, the innocent ones, pass by. In these kinds of shadows, something always seems to be waiting, impatiently waiting. In those kinds of shadows, something always seems to be watching, hungrily watching. These are not the warm shadows of September, for in that month the darkness still remembers the warmth of summer suns, nor were they yet the utterly dead shadows of bleak November to whom the sun's warmth is only a wan memory. These were the shadows of October, and they were hungry shadows. When the dying sun casts those shadows, well, this was Pine Deep, and it was October, a kind of October particular to Pine Deep. The spring and the summer before had been lush. The autumn of the year before that had been bright and bountiful, yielding one of those rare and wonderful golden harvests that are written off in tourist books of the region. And though there had been shadows, there hadn't been shadows as dark as these. No, these shadows belonged to an autumn whose harvest was going to be far darker. These were the shadows of a black harvest October in Pine Deep. So it was October when it happened should always be October when these things happen. In October, you expect things to die. With this effective tonal description established, Maberry delivers our first kill, the death of Officer Jimmy Castle at the hands of the vampiric Kenneth Boyd who we last saw in the previous novel. It's a wonderful description. It's ghoulish, it's ghastly, it's spooky. It's living up to the promise of this introduction, a love letter to Halloween and the things that go bump in the night. Part one, Blood Hunt. We check back in with our hero, Malcolm Crow, who, as you remember, has been hospitalized from his back-to-back -back bouts with the villainous criminal Carl Ruger, the second of which nearly killed him. He dreams... And in them, he's visited by the ghost of Orin Morse, a.k.a. the Bone Man. He wakes up with memories of Griswold, spurred by Ruger's final words, and we get a detailed summary of the events of the previous book. Regardless, not only do we get a rundown of the events of... Regardless... Why did, I write, why did I say regardless? Anyway, not only do we get a rundown of the events from the previous novel, but we also check back in with Tow Truck Eddie, who is watching Overcrow, pretending to be one of the good guys. Well, that's not exactly it, because he thinks he's one of the good guys. As he watches Overcrow, he's visited by the disembodied telepathic voice of Ubel Griswold, who assures him that his desire to kill the boy is the right desire, but must wait. A question around Iron Mike begins to form, if it hasn't already. Why does Griswold want him dead? What is so special about this kid? Spoiler alert for future plot points. Uh, so if you don't want to know, if you really are curious, um, if you haven't read 
the Pine Deep trilogy, or maybe you have read up to Dead Man's Song but don't want to know what happens yet in Bad Moon Rising, then just go ahead um, in, in the podcast. I don't want to necessarily ruin this yet. But spoiler alert for future plot points, but we're going to learn that Mike is the child of Terry Wolf um, and uh, of Ubel Griswold through Halloweeny supernaturalism. In the meantime, it's fun to wonder why he's such a murderable little kid for these guys. One guy in particular is Vic Wingate, who gets a wonderful description. Vic was 47 years old, and except for his eyes, he had the cold and patient eyes of an old crocodile. He would have passed for a fit 35. He was raw-boned and flat-bellied with arms and shoulders that held promise of quick and ugly power through, though not bulky muscles like Tow Truck Eddie, nor the sculpted physique of Terry Wolf, the town's charismatic and handsome mayor. Vic Wingate had wrestler's muscles and boxer's hands. Vic was battlefield tough and would take a bad hit just to land a crippling blow, though very few of his hits ever got past him. Vic chose his fights with care. He hit first and hardest and knew where to hit. Despite the pounding that uh, Mike takes from Vic, Mike has begun to heal rapidly as he begins a supernatural transformation that will ultimately pay off in the final book. He's visited by the Bone Man, who hopes that his transformation will balance things for the side of good and in that act will hopefully save the boy's soul. Chapter 2. We get a glimpse of one of our heroes, one who came later in the game of the previous book, Saul Weinstock. In the autopsy room, he mentally prepared himself for a day of cutting open not only Ruger, but Henry Guthrie, his friend. We get a glimpse of his home life, learn that he is a loving husband, sorry, husband and father. Him being in the morgue with the corpse of Ruger is a ticking time bomb because we expect that at any second the vampire is going to feed. We check back in with Frank Farrow and Vince LaMastra, the Philly cops whose pursuit of Ruger brought them into the town in the first place. As they survey the latest crime scene, the ripped-apart cops that kicked off the beginning of this book, we learn a fascinating character tick for Pharaoh. It was a mystery, and Frank Pharaoh hated mysteries. He hadn't joined the police force to solve them, and he hadn't welcomed the promotion to detective division to pursue them. Pharaoh preferred order. He had a hunter's nature, and that was something he liked. The hunt for clear answers, not for the unexplainable. And I think that's a great insight into his nature. His nature now is now running against logic. And there's a multi-page conversation between him, Lamastra, Gus, the police chief, Dr. Colbert, filling in for Saul Weinstock. They can all agree that something is wrong with this crime scene, that it's not adding up. And rather than providing answers, it's only generating more questions. And while they attempt to keep this under control, the reader learns that nearby the reporter, Willard Fuller Newton, is listening. And as we know from other stories in, in, in fiction, that typically the nosy reporter um, winds up being a, a needle or a thorn in the side of our heroes. And spoiler alert, that's not the case with Newton, um, as he's going to be one of the good guys. But at the same time, I mean, the man's just trying to do his job. But I like how when he's first introduced, you're not quite sure what his involvement is going to be. Chapter 3. 
With anyone else present, the two partners are able to discuss the illogical aspects of the murder of the two small town cops. Nothing is adding up, and La Mastra is shaking at the way in which the two cops were killed. Meanwhile, outside the kitchen window, Willard Fowler Newton continues to listen. Combining what he's learned with what Mike Sweeney had told him in the last book, he's sitting on a powder keg of information that's about to blow sky high. But Newton isn't the only one watching. Orrin Morse is watching too, and after checking in with the cops, he transports himself to the location of the thing that had once been Boyd. It's now a zombie vampire, and its new undead senses can detect the ghost, but although it rushes him, it can't do anything to him. Elsewhere, Mike Sweeney suffers from a prophetic dream whose characters include the Bone Man, Terry Wolf, and even Carl Ruger himself. Back in the hospital, Weinstock visits Crow, relieving tow truck Eddie of his policeman duties, albeit temporarily. The two take the opportunity to gossip about the strange bodybuilder and his religious zealotry. It's a good reminder to the audience the inhumanity of the character, who is somehow even more inhuman than Boyd, who has now lost all of his humanity. Monsters come in all shapes and sizes, whether it be Ruger, Boyd, Vic, or Eddie, and they all work for Griswold. Weinstock fills Crow up to speed about the well-being of his family. Val, for starters, followed by Connie and Mark, his soon-to-be in-laws. As I stated in the last review, the victimization of these two characters is a nuanced bit of horror. Most people experience death or assault, but Connie is reacting purely to what almost happened, as opposed to what did happen. Couple this with the murder of Mark's father, and it's a recipe for disaster. To compound the tragedy looming over this scene, Saul gets a call informing him about the death of Cohen and Castle. When Crow goes to visit the sleeping Val, we get a little bit of their backstory. Crow had loved Val off and on since third grade, even though she was more or less a rich kid and Crow was anyone's definition of the wrong side of the tracks. They'd met when Crow and his big brother Billy had gone to work for the summer at the Guthrie farm, earning comic book money by picking corn and pumpkins, filling wheelbarrows full of apples, gathering basketfuls of strawberries. At nine, Val Guthrie was as tough as a hickory stick and as smart as a whip, and her father put in charge all of the kids hired from around the town. Her best friend at the time was another rich kid, Terry Wolf, and it was pretty clear that Terry was sweet on Val. Crow and Billy had become friends with them, and throughout that summer and into the grim black autumn that followed, they ran as a pack, often with little Mandy Wolf running along behind to catch up. When that season started, it was always Val who called the shots, even though Billy was older. Then things turned bad, and by the end of that season, Billy was dead, Mandy was dead, and Terry was in a coma, all victims of the Pine Deep Reaper. That left Val and Crow together during those last days before the Reaper himself was cut down. Now, 30 years later, Val and Crow were going to be married, just as another Black Autumn was burning its way through their lives. Usually I'm not someone that needs backstory, if the present narrative is clear. But I'm still debating, and even though I have finished these three books for the third time now, I still can't make up my mind whether the sporadic flashes to the past are just too sporadic. A part of me admires that Madbury touches upon the past, but another part of me wishes that he dove in and provided us a detailed story of the events that had led up to the original Black Harvest. It'd make these little scenes less jarring. 
While Newt informs his editor of the events and prepares to publish the story, Vic makes plans to bust Ruger out of the morgue. Chapter 4. I'm not going to go into detail about this part, but it's incredibly rendered. Madberry doesn't settle for telling us about Eddie. He shows us tow truck Eddie in all of his gross glory, his zealotry fully on display. And guys, it's gross. It's gross. <laughs> As he hunts for his prey, Pharaoh and Lamastra hunt for theirs. There isn't a scene that goes by where Madberry doesn't add a Halloween touch to it. In this case, it's trees full of crows looking at Lamastra. Earlier, when Orin Morse showed up, he perched on a tree branch like a crow as the other branches were full of crows. It's just nice, quick, little Halloween-y touches. Pharaoh finds himself torn between his nature of facts and order with the growing sensation of wrongness. His mind tells him one thing, but his gut tells him the other. So when he and his men are exploring the woods, he can't help himself when he wants to turn back before night. He can't explain why, but he can't shake the feeling either. Madberry is wise to focus so much on Pharaoh. First, it's an easy character type to latch onto. We've seen this character many times before, and because he's described, because Madberry has a tendency, um, and its success is going to lie within um, your particular preference, I happen to not mind it, and I think that it's fun. But uh, Madberry has a tendency to fan cast his, his work um, within the text itself. So Pharaoh is constantly described as looking like Morgan Freeman. So, I mean, immediately we think of Morgan Freeman as a grizzled, uh, you know, hardened detective who's who's gone through the ringer time and time again. So, and we've seen that in as Morgan Freeman in the movie Seven. So, we, we can believe Frank Farrow. It's almost like a, a shorthand or a shortcut to get to the, the deeper connotations that we have for these characters. So, uh, choosing... Uh, Morgan Freeman as a point of reference definitely works in, in the novel's favor. And then, compared to the other characters, his journey towards the truth, it's not going to come easy. And there's fun to be had watching him arrive towards it. I mean, Terry already knows it, but denies it. Crow is predisposed to believe it, as is Val. Mike is already in the throes of a supernatural crisis, so it's good to have at least one character whose moral and character traits run against the occurrences that are occurring within the town. Saul Weinstock uh, is another character, and I just enjoy watching both he and Pharaoh run along their parallel journeys that ultimately will intersect with one another, but two rational men in an irrational world. During the search, dogs get spooked and at a couple I'm sorry, dogs get spooked at a couple of mounds which the search party leave alone. And after they're gone, Maberry gives us a wonderful spooky description of what lies within the mound. An hour passed, and nothing moved. Full dark came on, sliding in tidal waves of shadows across the seas of corn washing up against the wall of pines. Stars ignited coldly overhead, and there was the faint threat of moonlight far away to the east. The big mound, the one nearest to the front ranks of cornstalks, trembled. The piles of loose dirt shivered for a moment, was still, 
then abruptly fell outward from the mound in muddy clumps as the whole side of the mound collapsed. As it fell away, an arm was revealed, waxy white flesh in a torn and stained sleeve. Dead fingers lay half-curled like worms around a palm that was caked with dirt. The nails were thick and dark, cracked and crusted with old blood. A nightbird cawed and flapped in its way out of the trees and lit atop the mound, staring hungrily down at the dead flesh. As it waited a while, listening to the night, hearing no sound, seeing no movement, it hopped down the slope driven by hunger at the sight of so much spoiled meat. Two others swooped down and landed on the ground near the base of the mound. The razor-sharp blade of the moon sliced through a distant bank of clouds and bathed the hand in a blue-white light. The nightbird cawed again and hopped down another few inches. The other two stood and watched. One more hop, and the nightbird was close enough to bend down and take a single experimental peck, tearing a tiny scrap of skin away from the bulge of muscle at the base of the thumb. The other birds cried out in appreciation and edged forward. Now all three were close enough to dine. The one on the mound took a final hop and stood by the edge of the hand, its clawed feet an inch from the little finger. It swallowed the first bite and bent for another. The hand shot out and closed around it with such speed and force that the bird exploded in a spray of bloody black feathers. It had no chance to cry out as it died, but the others screamed in terror and threw themselves into the air, racing up and away as the dead thing under the dirt shoved its way out into the moonlight, still holding the crushed bird in its hand. It rose slowly, using its other hand to paw dirt away from its milky eyes and slack-lipped mouth. For a moment it stood swaying there, staring up at the rising moon with a dreadful expectancy. Then it seemed to notice that it held something in its hand and looked down to see burst meat and fresh blood. Without a moment's hesitation, Kenneth Boyd stuffed the dead crow into his mouth, tearing at it with wickedly long teeth. Oh my god! Come on, guys. Seriously, I am just so jealous of passages like that. That is a true master on display. Um, I mean, I, I feel like... I mean, I don't know how anyone listening to that doesn't feel as though they are right there. I mean, I can feel... The, the night chill on my skin. I can see the moon. I, I, I just, he does such a good job at placing us where he needs to place us to feel as though we ourselves are in Pine Deep. Chapter 5. Maberry continues to check in on the characters in the aftermath of the book's first, first book's climax. This time we meet up with Mark, and things aren't looking good for this Guthrie. What relationship he has with Connie is most likely irreparable, and she's so purposefully doped up, she just sleeps all the time. The next character is the monstrous Vic Wingate. Guys, I'm going to be honest with you. Don't hold it against me. Don't judge me. Please. I love, I love Vic Wingate. This character is such a wonderfully horrible human being 
Who knows that about himself? But rather than just being an abusive stepfather and lowlife, he's a plotting, intelligent, ruthless, and cunning weapon. Elsewhere, the ghost of Oren Morse is frustrated with his inability to affect the world around him. It's a good touch. If we just kept getting flashes of the ghost, I, it, it might wind up getting repetitive. But by making the ghost an actual character, it makes it worth the read. We get a little more with Connie, who turns out is faking the catatonia. This was the second time today Val came into her room to speak with her, and both times Connie had shut down as soon as Val had walked through the door. The first time, Val hadn't seen the change happen, but this second time she had. Connie had begun reading Ladies Home Journal, and when Val had opened the door, Connie had just let the magazine spill out of her hand and slide to the floor. Then she turned her face away, and when Val had walked around to look at her, all she saw were empty doll's eyes. It was definitely deliberate. Inexplicable and weird, but deliberate. Still, Val did not give up on it, and she sat with Connie for ten more minutes, speaking softly to her for a while, and then just holding her hand. It was like sitting with the dead. This shows Val's compassion and humanity. I mean, after all, it was Val's father who actually died. Val was viciously attacked. Her fiancé was nearly murdered in front of her twice. Understandably, Connie also went through an ordeal, but if you're going to weigh the experiences, I think that we can all agree that Val went through the ringer here. The fact that she's so patient with Connie demonstrates why the Guthries are so respected in this town. On the other hand, I do love what Mabberry is doing with Connie here. I love how each of the characters are going through their own personal hell. And no two characters are dealing with this in the same way. Um, and, and Connie's development after the events of the first book, are, I've never seen. I've never seen this before, um, with the exception of one time. And whenever I read this now, I can't help but think of Buster from Arrested Development when he faked his own coma. But anyway, now, at 100 pages in, Terry Wolf finally shows up. In my last review, and I still struggle with this, but in my last review of Ghost Road Blues, you might remember that I felt that Terry's story and his character felt a little undercooked. Um, and I would say that not seeing him again for over 100 pages doesn't help. But then sometimes I just don't know. I really vacillate uh, between my two thoughts here of, of, of feeling that Terry is undercooked. But Madberry does a wonderful job because I'm going to be reading a sequence not that, not that far down the road uh, in this podcast that Madberry just nails. He nails. It's, it might be the best character moment in all three of the books, and it belongs to Terry. Um but for all my criticisms on, on Terry, and they're weak criticisms because I, I can't quite nail it down, but um, I, I do think that Madberry does a, 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 a good job at giving us more of Terry in this book and, and really seeing why he's a special character. I mean, we, we all know Crow, um, the, the, the black belt, uh, samurai sword wielding ghoulish, uh, child-at-heart comedian hero, right? Uh, and then Terry, we're, we're first introduced as someone that's on the edge. The problem, I guess, was that we never saw him before he was on that edge. 
So it's why passages like like these are are so important because when he shows back up, he brings with him the worldview of the larger goings on in the town, and we realize that Ruger has only been one part of his overall problem. More importantly, for the entire town, blight and insects have swept through the farms, which could cause bankruptcy for the majority of the townspeople. It's not hard to deduce that there's supernaturalism at work due to the fact that the Guthrie's land is untouched, as is the garlic and the holly farms. Now finally, with this quick reintroduction to Terry Wolf, we fully understand the pressure that comes with this job. And maybe this is something that Maberry could have included in the first book, but he does it here and he does it incredibly well. Not only is Terry balancing the farming crisis, but he's also the mayor of a destination spot during the rapidly approaching Halloween season. And because there's so much attention, it brings celebrities as well. And here is where Maberry really lays out how big of a deal Pine Deep gets. As a mayor, Terry also had to be Mr. Cheerful because of all of the celebrities that the town attracted throughout the season, and this year the festival would be bigger than ever. Terry had to speak with managers and publicity people to assure them that the stars would each receive the royal treatment. Ken Foray, star of the original Dawn of the Dead, was going to MC a marathon of all of the Living Dead films. Horror special effects wizard Tom Savini was judging a monster makeup competition on the campus. And Scream Queen Brink Stevens was appearing at another film marathon, this one leading off with her classic Sorority Babes in a Slimeball Bolorama, which would be shown in a gigantic tent on the Hayride grounds. And another Scream Queen, Debbie Roshan, was doing a signing in a tent at the Hayride. Good Morning America was going to be doing a Halloween morning broadcast from Town Hall, and Regis Philman was set to do a live presentation from the Hayride the Thursday before Halloween. Screenwriter Steven Susko, whose latest film, The Grudge 2, was just about to be released, would be hosting a screening of both films in that series and giving a talk on American interpretations of Japanese horror films. And writer-director James Gunn was in town to promote the DVD release of his recent horror film, Slither. There were rumors that some of the cast of that film might show up with him. So for fans of the genre, there are a lot of treats in that paragraph, and I love Jonathan Matberry for paying off on the promise of that paragraph. So make sure that you stick around and don't even stick around for my review. Just go out and read these books and read Bad Mood Rising and see what I'm talking about because there's so much joy to be had by seeing these celebrities that live in our real world be in Pine Deep on Halloween night when Ubel Griswold's red wave plan comes to fruition. It's, I don't know, it's, it's, I'm trying to think of the right Halloween analogy. It's not the, the cherry on, on top. It's, um, I don't know, the, the lantern in the jack-o'-lantern, the candle in jack-o'-lantern, I don't know, but whatever it is, it is, it's, it's just the right touch. And then, Maberry gives us a ridiculous coincidence, but one that is so much fun, and it's one that I love. Like I've been saying, and I apologize for beating a dead horse here, but the, the books are a love letter to the spooky season. So I can't blame him for including the fact that Friday the 13th falls in the month of October. 
For the town, it creates something called Little Halloween, a boost for business all around, and for our characters, gives an extra dose of creepiness as we build towards the faded day. Chapter 6. Pharaoh and Lamasta, Lamastra press Gus to push for a curfew, but because the town's financial gains are based on tourism, it's not a possibility. An advisory goes out, suggesting that people should go home at dark, but it blows up in their faces. With a town that celebrates the spooky fun of things that go bump in the night, it should come as no surprise that the warning actually causes more people to flood to the streets after dark. At the swamp, Vic has a conversation with Griswold, describing the actions of Boyd um, and how it's brought more attention at a time that they need less. Vic refers to the ultimate plan for the first time as the Red Wave. And it creates a mystery for readers to continue to, to go on to discover what the Red Wave is. Boyd is then given a glimmer of more mental ability by Griswold. And then he ends the scene with a My Life For You styled declaration of obedience towards the creature in the swamp. At this point, Newton's story breaks and instantly becomes national news. Maberry details all of the major media sites that pick it up and how the town deals with the outrage of what they feel is having been been put in danger. As the police are barraged by attack dog questions, Terry saves the day. And this goes back to what I was saying about how I, I still can't make up my mind because there's times I feel like we didn't get to know Terry before he starts to go insane and, and, and feel as though we just didn't know him as a character before this crucial period of his downfall. But then Maberry goes and, like I said earlier, gives us what might be the best character moment in all three books. So just remember as I read this that up until this moment, the press was out of control, just hammering and hounding and had the authorities on the ropes. And then Mayberry writes, at the stroke of one, the back door to the chief's office banged open and through it walked Terry Wolf. He wore a white shirt with the sleeves rolled up, a dark blue tie loosened at the throat and he had buttoned the top two shirt buttons. His hair was just slightly tussled, and his curly red beard looked a little wild. The effect was that of a man who had been seriously at work all night in the trenches. He walked right through the middle of the crowd, which yielded and parted for him. Though they continued to babble questions at him, past a grateful Gus Bernhardt and a skeptical pharaoh, who had become convinced that the mayor had wigged out and stopped in the precise center of the crowd. Everyone, everyone, I'm sorry, I just got a text. Uh, everyone was speaking at once, yelling, demanding, imploring, reviling, questioning, accusing. But Terry said nothing, did nothing, other than fix his blueberry eyes on the nearest reporter and then turn very slowly in a full circle, making deliberate eye contact with as many people as possible. His stare was hard and unfaltering as a statue's, and from the subtle arch of one eyebrow and the set of his stern mouth, it was clear that he was not going to speak until he had a more attentive and respectful audience. He did not say a word, but gradually every voice faltered and grew silent. 
By the time he completed the full turn, the crowded office was totally quiet, except for the rustling of clothes and a small, embarrassed cough here and there. Here, Maberry has given himself the perfect opportunity to show us why Terry is so skilled at politics, and he doesn't disappoint. Terry becomes a magician before the cameras, undoing the spell of fear that had been brewing before he began to lull the crowd with his own incantations. And I should read the entire passage. It goes on for a while. It's, it's, it's pages and pages and pages of just showing us how he's just really good at politics and being a leader. And that's important is that, and maybe that's what it, I, I just never feel connected is that he is the heart of this town and he is the leader of these people. And it is heartbreaking to know that at the time of its most crisis, he isn't able to lead them to their fullest. But it's moments like this that show us the promise of Terry, that show us why he was elected again and again and again. And it's awesome. It's awesome. Chapter 7. We begin with another scene of Vic tearing into Mike. And just in case we forgot how bad Mike had it, the difference is Mike can now undergo fugue states that cause rapid healing. Maberry checks in with the other characters who are tied to Griswold, like Terry himself and Tow Truck Eddie. We've just seen Terry at his best. Now we see him at his worst, hounded by his dead sister to kill himself. And Eddie's scene reminds us of his duty to kill the beast. I don't remember if I mentioned it or not, but Maberry does that thing that he likes to do, and I did mention it. Fan casts his characters in a movie um, like he did with Saul. Oh, I can't remember his name. Who did I? So close, but um, yeah, he he does uh, cast Saul as a famous actor. Um, Pharaoh, as we know, would would be cast as uh, by Morgan Freeman. Lamastra is Howie Long. Crow is Greg Kinnear, and as a result, Newton gets cast as Jason Alexander. Chapter eight, we get a fascinating psychoanalysis of Mark Guthrie following the attack by Ruger and the death of their father. Because Mark had convinced himself he was a powerful man from his business acumen, the appearance and dominance of Ruger has shaken him to his core. Because Crow had done what he himself could not, he begins taking it out on Crow. And I love the fact that the first book, Maverick knows that he can't compare to the, the just the, the magical wonder of just falling in love with this town that the first book has. And it, it can't compare to the what the hell is going to happen next quality um, of, of Bad Moon Rising. What he does with Dead Man's Song is he, he distinguishes it from the other two by really zeroing in on the aftermath of the first book. And uh, he does a, a great job at balancing, focusing on the aftermath from the first book, setting it up, setting the events up uh, for the second book. So we get a perfect blend of characterization and plot development. But in terms of the characterization, I, I just, you have to admire that he's juggling all of these characters. I mean, think about like the, the characters that are in play that, 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 that are, that have almost all of them are sharing a plots between Val and uh, Crow and Terry and Mike, Vic even, uh, you know, all of these Ruger. And then you have a, a tertiary character like Mark. Um... And Madbury spends time with him and, and shows that Madbury has thought 
a lot about Mark Guthrie. And Mark isn't in many pages, but the, the pages that he is in feels like a fully realized character who has his own mechanism for grief and has his own insecurities and the way that that he grieves and deals with this aftermath and tries to adjust to reality after reality has been broken for him is completely different than his wife's and um just the the struggle that the two of them have individually and then together it's just very real because it's messy and it's not clear and it's just different and that's life. And I just, I love that that's represented through a character that um, doesn't play a major part in the book. And there's many authors out there that can't th can't get this level of nuance for their major characters, let alone their, their secondary or tertiary characters. Anyway, in the newspaper offices... Newton is admonished by his editor for an inflammatory piece he wants to write about the corruption of Pine Deep's government. Instead, the editor offers him an even better assignment, the spooky history of Pine Deep, which includes the Reaper murders, who victims had included the Crows, the Wolves, and the Guthries. Chapter 9 Though Terry might have seemed in control during the press conference, he's anything but. He confides in Crow about Mandy and the dreams, and even referenced Ubel Griswold, which for Crow is too soon after hearing the name come from Ruger. Just then, Terry gets word that Boyd had broken Ruger out of the morgue. Interlude Maberry provides a fantastic change of pace and perspective as he switches to a local farmer who is musing on the recent goings-on. He captures the fear and paranoia as the man makes his way through the land only to discover mounds of soil in the earth, freshly dug graves in the land. Naturally, the discovery of these graves leads to the emergence of what lives within the graves. It's a phenomenal sequence of classic vampire horror that it rivals any scene from Salem's Lot. And I would love to read the entire passage, but it's actually pretty lengthy and it would work on its own as just a, as a nice little uh, short story. But uh, it's great here that Mabberry sprinkles these interludes throughout this book because these interludes give us these nice bits of perspectives away from the main characters and shows just as Ubel Griswold's influence and his plan begins to, to um, solidify what happens to the, the, the everyday townsfolk who just become uh, really vampire fodder for the bad guys. Part 2, The Season of the Wolf, Chapter 10. Mabberry has been teasing an apocalyptic future glimpsed in the dreams of various characters. It's an effective way to tease the events yet to come. Mike with a katana, Crow with a flamethrower. It's good stuff and sets a future where our heroes die. So if Mike and Terry succumb to the evil that lies within, hold on, hold on, the evil that lies within, tangent, I realize I just quoted the log line and the chorus to a ridiculously underappreciated 80s cartoon in Humanoids. Um, it's a shame that this show didn't take off. I'm sorry. <coughs> I'm sorry. Super tangent. But listen, I feel as though it's in my duty to talk about this because nobody talks about in Humanoids. Nobody talks about it. Um... It, it, it's just it, the show should have taken off. I mean, it was produced by the same team behind Transformers and G.I. Joe. So same level of production quality. I mean, with Transformers, you had robots. With G.I. Joe, you had action adventure. With Inhumanoids, you had giant monsters. It was great. It was super creepy. So the whole plot of Inhumanoids, I'm telling you, tangent. 
revolves around these scientists um, who have built these uh, these like kind of Iron Man suits that allow them to to uh, to, to dig under the earth and explore. And uh, in the Pacific Northwest, the loggers um, they they find this um, this giant. Uh, case of amber and in it, it they, they think they have found a dinosaur and what's really neat is that a lot of the loggers have been talking about ghosts in the woods and that some they feel that something's out there and that maybe the trees have been moving so it's just already super creepy and then they discover this giant dinosaur encased in amber and so um i believe that the the, the giant uh dinosaur gets in in the amber gets taken to san francisco i believe for the museum elsewhere um, I'm not quite sure. Maybe in the desert they're doing drilling. They're doing drilling in the desert uh, for oil. And uh, oh yeah, it's it's the bad guy of the show. He's like uh, he's an oil magnet, and uh, he he keeps telling them to drill deeper, deep drill, uh, deep driller, deep deep, drill deeper, dr drill deeper, and uh, all of a sudden they hear this scream come from below the earth and everything begins shaking it's like an earthquake and the drill gets knocked over and what they don't know is that they had awakened something beneath the ground and make a long story short on the unveiling of the the dinosaur um the museum is attacked by the creature that was awoken from the drill and the creature is this giant plant-like uh monster with just uh tentacles for arms and its name is tendril by the way and it breaks out the the dinosaur in the amber who is not a dinosaur but a uh a skeleton giant skeletal creature it's it's rib cages um are exposed it has this horse this skeletal horse face um and its skin is just uh yellow and and mottled and and sickly and its name is decompose and here's the thing if decomposes touches you he turns you into into a zombie monster that serves him, okay? And then he can, like, open up his ribcage and he can, like, put you in his body and it's just like a prison. It's super creepy. And the two of them, uh, they serve their leader, Metlar, who is this, uh, th this monster ogre troll creature that just is all about fire. So it's clearly that they were playing with, like, devil imagery and Metlar is trapped um, below the earth. So... They have to go break him out. So the scientists with their suits, they're the only ones that can save the day. So they follow the monsters into the earth because, remember, in humanoids, the evil that lies within the earth. So it opens up to this, like, gigantic world underneath the, the, the our earth where there are these, you know, primitive monster civilizations and these are the forces of 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 evil but there were also forces of good there were the 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 stone creatures who um just these rock creatures that um fought tendril and then remember i how i said the um pacific northwest loggers they thought that they heard the trees moving it's because the trees were moving and they, they were keeping an eye on decompose and at the center of the earth Metlar, the leader, is caught between the gravitational poles of of two beings who are just this 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 
two incredibly powerful beings. One is made of rock and then one is made of fire and they can conjoin to become um, like this kind of like super good guy monster. But they they have to sacrifice themselves because if they leave their spot, then Metlar will be able to be free. So uh, eons before all three of the creatures had been imprisoned. Um, but now they all escape uh, to run amok uh, on the earth. And as they continue to, to, you know, continue to break out through the earth's crust attack and then, you know, head back below, we learn of more monsters and some of the human characters become monsters. And it was just, oh my God, in humanoids, guys, in humanoids, if you haven't seen in humanoids, it's probably all on YouTube. So you should just check it out in humanoids in humanoids. The evil that lies within. Anyway, with the dream sequence, if Mike doesn't succumb to the evil that lies within, he might be able to avoid the dark future that he's glimpsed in these dreams. Now, I, I don't recall. My mind's a bit scattered as, as evidenced by my inhumanoids tangent. But I don't really recall if Mike's condition has been identified in the past has it? I don't know. But here it's revealed by the Bone Man, our resident stalker ghost, who refers to Mike as a Dampier, which I believe was the same term used by the mythology in Vampire Hunter D. Again, another cartoon that not enough people talk about. Not that Vampire Hunter D or Madberry coined the term. I mean, it has its roots in European folklore. And I've already gone on one tangent. I'm not going to go on another. But if you haven't seen Vampire Hunter D or Vampire Hunter D Bloodlust, you're really doing yourself a disservice. I haven't read the books, but I hear that they're great. Um, and I guess there was rumor of a Kickstarter of trying to get a third Vampire Hunter D um, movie off the ground that would have Vampire Hunter D in space, I guess, um, which would be awesome. It just, look, you'll, <laughs> when you're done watching Inhumanoids, go out and watch Vampire Hunter D and Vampire Hunter D Bloodlust about the Dampier, which is what Mike is. Okay, trying to bring it back. In the same home, in Vic's basement, we get a great scene between Vic and Ruger. Just watching these two alphas in the same room, you just know that this isn't going to work out well, even if they're on the same team. Vic established dominance, and with Ruger's cool indifference, it's just a matter of time before Ruger outmaneuvers him. Or maybe Vic will surprise us and show us that he's so much more the monster in this story that he's able to one-up the actual monster. The loaded tension that springs up between them is just pure storytelling gold. Chapter 11. The authorities react to the fact that not only has Carl Ruger gone missing from the morgue, but surveillance shows that Boyd was the one to do it. And it's clear from the tapes that something is very wrong with Boyd. The only thing that everyone is sure of is that they can't quite fathom what's occurring in this town. In Vic's basement, we see the cat and mouse game between Ruger and Vic. Vic isn't there at the moment. He's studying the town bridges for a probable explosion at a later date. In the basement, Ruger takes the opportunity to read as much from Vic's library to learn about his condition. And through his perspective, we see that it's just a matter of time before Ruger makes his move. The two of them, it's like they're both vying for daddy's attention. It's great. It's a great scene. It's a dangerous scene in which Ruger tests his abilities. He controls his thirst. He tests his exposure to sunlight. And we know that he still has it out for Crow. But not just to kill, but to break. And what better way to do that than by turning his fiance against him? Chapter 12. 
Here's the good news and the bad news. The good news is that Val reveals to Crow that she's pregnant. Halfway through the book and the series, we have an uplifting moment for our characters. The bad news is that it's halfway through the book, and the series and good things cannot last, especially when Ruger and Wingate had just previously been plotting against them. Now, going back to Madberry's characterization of Terry Wolf, well, I felt that he wasn't fleshed out enough. Um, but like earlier in the press conference, I, I think that Dead Man's song does wonders for this character who shines in nearly every scene he's in, whether he's hypnotizing the press or here, where he establishes dominance over the FBI itself after its agents question the competence of Frank Farrow. There was a sound like a gunshot and everyone jumped in their speed seats and spun towards Terry, who had just slammed his palm down hard and flat against the table. Agent Spinlicker, he snapped, if you think there's a problem in the way things have been handled, then come out and say it. He glared, he glared at the SAC and at that moment, Terry Wolf seemed to fill the room. Spinlicker hedged. I, I, I didn't say that, sir. I know. You're pussyfooting around it. If you have a problem with the way Sergeant Farrow handled things, come out and say it now. The air between them crackled like the charge between two poles. Spinlicker said, No, sir. Terry's face remained hard as a fist. And stare and shut the fuck up. Heckenhauser gasped audibly, and the Sadies exchanged startled, startled looks. Gus was shocked at the language he was hearing from Terry. Pharaoh was still staring at the mirror, and Lamastra was grinning. Terry saw the smile and wheeled on him. And you can wipe that shit-eating grin off your face, detective. I'm not saying that you guys had done such a great job, either. That wiped Lamastra's face clean. Addressing the whole table, Terry said, This is my town, gentlemen, but this is not my mess. It's yours. Now clean it up! Again, his palm came down on the table hard enough to make everyone jump. One of my closest friends is dead. My best friend just got out of the hospital along with his fiance, whom I've known since kindergarten. One of my cops is dead, and so is an officer loaned to me from a neighboring town. I have a hospital worker in intensive care with a split skull, a woman who was nearly raped, her husband who had his face kicked in, shots fired in my hospital, two other cops down with injuries, and now a body stolen from the morgue. Every reporter in the world is here, and according to the news stories, I'm starting to see this town, my town, is becoming a joke in terms of safety. I heard this town mentioned on daily show last night and on leno it's a goddamn punchline so when i tell you that i'm 100 fed up with this bullshit you better believe me that i'm serious about the last thing i want to hear or see is you getting into a jurisdictional pissing contest am i getting through with you on this loud and clear sir pharaoh said Spinlicker and the others just nodded gus was staring at terry with a look of fascinated awe it is a wonderful character beat for the guy who continues to shine in every scene he's in and making my original criticism more and more pointless every time he shows up on the page. Throughout the town, characters continue to live their lives even if the chaos grows around them. Saul continues to investigate what happened in the morgue. Newton continues his investigation of the past and Mike is given the responsibility of running Crow's shop. But back to Saul, his investigation brings him to the impossible truth of things, a truth he can't deny, <coughs> as he must come to terms that the bodies in the morgue have been brought there because of a vampire attack. Now that scene is right up there with the first quarter of Salem's Lot. 
chapter 13. Vic tightens the rein of his control over the town. He threatens his lanky, his lackey, Polk, to acquire dynamite. And knowing that Vic had been poking around the bridges, it's not hard to imagine why he needs it. From there, Maberry jumps back to Weinstock, who has all the physical evidence he needs to tell him he's looking at a case of vampirism. It's one of the highlights of the book. Traditionally, you have two types of vampire stories. The classic supernatural ones like Dracula, They Thirst, Salem's Lot. Or you have the new wave vampire stories, which are explained through pseudoscience. Stories like The Passage and The Strain fall into that category. What we have here is a nice dollop of science and a supernatural story. And we see how science might point towards the truth. But it's not going to help anyone solve it. Chapter 14. We get another series of dreams. Crow Dream, well described, of his time um, as a boy being chased by Griswold. Even though it has no bearing on the present narrative or the conflict, it's harrowing and heart-pounding. This leads into what Terry perceives as a dream of changing into a monster with the urge to eat his wife. What he doesn't know is that he's not dreaming at all. It's a fantastic button of an ending. Chapter 15. These chapter reviews at this point seem a little thin. It's because we're halfway through the book and it's all building dread. As I'm reading, we're just being taken from character to character who gets a bad feeling and we worry about their safety. And I, I know that that might sound dismissive, but it's not. It's just it's just what Mad Barry needs to do because the really big stuff isn't going to happen until the next book. I mean, and this is the difficulty of the middle chapter. You can't get to the good stuff. You can't get to the big stuff. Remember my, my complaints about Song of Susanna? It's it's my least favorite of the Dark Tower novels. Um, and it just suffers from not being able to really pull the trigger because King has to wait until the, the conclusion of the Dark Tower to, to actually get to that. Um, one thing that, that, help, that happens to help shift the book into the next gear, though, is the interaction between Newton and Crow. Newton comes to Crow for an interview about the Pine Deep killings years before, and Crow makes plans to sit down with him. And this is going to fold Newton into the band of heroes. This is followed by Crow mentoring Mike, the promise established in the first book, and is finally fulfilled. Not only is he giving Mike a safe space during the day, but he's now going to teach him how to fight. The fact that it's pretty improbable that Mike will go from a novice to a skilled fighter in 25 days can be explained away because magic. Speaking of which, we learn just a little bit more about Mike. Whether he's transforming into... Whatever he's transforming to presents a danger to Griswold, and whatever he is, it could spread to others. Chapter 16. Even though Griswold is most oftentimes blind to the boy, he spots opportunity and sends tow truck Eddie to prowl the streets. He's only stopped because the one man uses what little energy he had because the bone man, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, my notes got screwed up. He is only stopped because the bone man uses what little energy he has left to shield Mike from Eddie's eyes. Really, really cool scene. And every time the Bone Man, and he's going to do it again, uses his powers um, in this way, it just it just makes you love the Bone Man just a little bit more. Chapter 17. At this point, I start to worry about Saul. He's the only one who has a clue what's going on, and he can't get any help. 
Ferry and Lamastra are heading back to Philly, believing Boyd has finally left for good, and Crow is too busy running the shop and training Mike. This is a character I can see dying a tragic death before he has a chance to warn the town. Val tries to get back to the routine of her life, but she can't shake the vulnerability springing from the attack and her father's death. We learn a little about the history of how her brother had been a victim of the Pine Deep Reaper. Chapter 18. With Newton as the framing device, Crow launches into the history of Pine Deep, specifically the backstory of Ubel Griswold. We've heard the name, we've seen others worship him, we've seen him, seen, him, seen him as a monster, but it's good to peel back and see him functioning within the more recognizable world. We learn that he had been a very private farmer of cows, car, cows that were never sold, and he had hired bums and homeless types because, as Crow believes, no one would care if they go missing. One of those men was Orrin Morse, who wound up working for Henry. We learn of the Golden Harvest, the year of great prosperity followed by the Black Harvest, a season of plague and death. It's during this discussion where we get a tease of what could have been, a glimpse of uh, an it-like gang of losers comprising of Crow, his older brother Terry, his sister, and Val. But the hub of this crew is Val and Terry, who are best friends, a wrinkle that is mentioned in the books, but never feeling like it reaches its potential. This feels like an example of telling the reader, not showing the reader, which sucks, because I'd like to see this explored further. And then what we learn later is that it's not just that they were best friends, but they almost might have been meant to be. They had dated. They were in love. And they break up because of Ubel, Ubel Griswold's interference in Terry's life, unbeknownst to Val at the time. So, I mean, we, we get some... We get Madbury telling us that Val doesn't like Terry. It's never fully under you know explained why. Eventually, he gets around to telling us that, yes, they had dated. Um, and it's history. But I don't know. I, I just, again, I feel like something about it is missing. And maybe it's because I just like the characters so much and I want a little bit more, but something just doesn't feel full. All in all, um, Crow's story, it's a, it's a really well-told yarn. It's a ghost story, honestly, squeezed into the middle of this novel. It's good for the reader to get a sense of life during the original Black Harvest and the time of the Reaper murders. I do think that it would have been better to transplant the reader to that time, though. And maybe because we've seen it so successfully implemented in It, but I think it's a missed opportunity to, 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 to show us because he just winds up telling us after the fact. Now, imagine being a part of this group of children, knowing that Val and Terry are best friends with a part of that and feeling the sensation of loss during their adult years when there's apathy and a lack of relationship between them. We would feel that loss. As a reader, I don't. I don't feel that loss. I, I, I understand it on a cerebral level, but not at the emotional one because I didn't experience their friendship. I was only told of their friendship after the fact. Interlude. Like we had earlier in the story, we get another interlude showing the unsuspecting victims of Pine Deep. In this case, it's two kids who are visited by a ghostly, unearthly vampire uh, friend in the shades of the classic Danny Glick window scene from Salem's Lot. We even have a vampire boy tapping at the window. Now, this has to be a nod towards King's classic scene. Part 3. Little Halloween. Chapter 19. 
Things kick off with a funeral for Henry Guthrie, and as you'd expect, everyone from town comes to pay their respects to the heart and soul of the town itself. Mabberry continues to see to tease Weinstock's troubling secret, and Crow notices that something is wrong with him. Again, everything is pointing towards the idea that Weinstock will die before he gets the chance. I don't remember exactly who's still around for the final book. I think that Weinstock's still there, but his death would be an effective one, one that would resonate. The reception allows a scene between Crow and Pharaoh, a combination of character interaction that we haven't seen much of and one that crackles. Weinstock might be the magnet drawing the different forces of good together. Both Pharaoh and Crow talk about Weinstock's vague concerns. Both are intrigued, but both are exhausted by their respective recent struggles to pay too much mind. Then, one of the more illogical moments of the three books. Mike Sweeney realize, uh, rationalizes that he should seek out tow truck Eddie because Eddie is friends with Vic. None of that makes sense. He knows that tow truck Eddie owns a wrecker, much like the one that nearly killed him in the previous book, and he knows that Vic is a bad man. So, if you know a friend of a bad man who owns a wrecker like the one that nearly killed Mike, you do not take it upon yourself to willingly talk to that person. Chapter 20. In the last chapter, I mentioned that I uh, like the freshness of the inter uh, character interaction between Frank Farrow and Malcolm Crow. Similarly, I like the budding dynamic duo of Crow and his new sidekick, Willem Fowler Newton, who he convinces to accompany him on a trip to Ubel Griswold's old place. Knowing that we're heading into the final act of this book, and that this is the second act of a three-book story, the field trip cannot end well, and I can't wait to see what happens, especially seeing as how we're entering a Friday the 13th in October known as Little Halloween. One issue that comes up with these types of vampire stories is, how do the authorities ignore a growing list of missing or dead people? What stops the authorities from declaring a state of emergency, calling for state troopers or the CDC? Well, in this case, Madbury must have thought about that because Jim Polk has been running interference for Vic and by extension Griswold himself. Checking back in with Crow and Mike, the tutelage continues with Mike receiving a samurai sword. He doesn't seem to remember that he has had dreams where he's clutching a sword, but the reader remembers, and the prophecy of those dreams is beginning to come true. And during the teaching of the sword play, we get a scene of Malcolm Crow's badassery, where he is a swashbuckling samurai. Crow walked over and flipped open the top of the plastic cooler that was set on the back step of the building, fished around it, and then brought out an apple. I'm going to throw this at your head, he said casually. Try to knock it out of the way with your sword. You kidding me here, Mike said. Nope, Crow said and tossed him the apple. He threw it underhanded and without much speed or force, but it bumped Mike in the forehead despite the wild swing of the wooden bakken. Ow! Sorry, now pick it up and throw it back. Looking angry, Mike picked up the apple and threw it, harder than he intended and much faster right at Crow's face. There was a rasping sound, a glitter of sunlight on steel, and the two halves of the apple hit the back wall of the building on either side where Crow had stood. He held the sword in one hand, the scabbard in the other, and he was smiling. With a snap of his wrist, he pointed the sword down at the floor, and droplets of moisture from the apple flew from the oiled blade and patterned the flagstones. Then, with a flash that was too fast for Mike to follow, Crow swung the sword around and returned it to its scabbard. 
come on. I mean, that's just awesome. You know, it's it's just one of those things that's just as cool as, you know, like a goon sneaking up behind Batman and Batman not looking around, just throwing his forearm up in the air and just smashing the, the goon in the back without turning around. It's just, there's certain things that are just cool. And what he just wrote, it's just cool. But that's not the most important part of the scene. This is. He felt supercharged, and while he stood there listening to Crow speak and not taking in a single word, Mike's grip on the sword changed. It was a subtle thing, but as he held the sword in his hand, his fingers flexed to let the handle rest more comfortably against his palm. His elbow bent a bit more to allow his forearm to counterbalance the weight of the long wooden blade, and he raised the tip of the sword so that it would not touch the ground. He was aware of none of this. The changes were small, the corrections subtle, but thereafter he never picked up the Bakken and held it incorrectly again. Weeks later, when he held a real sword in his hands, all of this would matter. Worlds turn on such moments. If that doesn't make you want to read, keep reading, I don't know what's gonna. Chapter 21. Here's where things get really fun if you're a big fan of the horror genre. Not only is Mabberry crafting a perfectly executed monster story that's a love letter to Halloween, but he's setting it in a highly stylized tourist town in our reality that would absolutely cater to our real-world horror sensibility, which means horror celebrities. So, if the names Ken Foray, Brink Stevens, Tom Safini mean anything to you, you're in for a treat. <laughs> the Brink Stevens one gets me. That's a pretty deep cut right there. Chapter 22. Here we go. We're two-thirds of our way through the book, and Mabberry sets the stage so wonderfully. For a town like Pine Deep, having Friday the 13th fall in October was a reason to celebrate. Little Halloween, they called it. Schools were let out at noon, special football games were scheduled, and there was a major party planned for the haunted hayride, and the town got into a party mood. The Harvestman Inn ran a special for groups of employees who showed company ID, 13 beers for 13 bucks. Motley's Steaks offered a special on 13-inch hoagies. And the Dead End Drive-In was advertising a movie marathon of classic horror that kicked off with the entire Friday the 13th series, including a Jason Voorhees costume contest. Tourists would be pouring in by noon, and by 2 o'clock, there would be 10,000 people packing the streets and another 5,000 at the Pinelands College Stadium for the non-league game between the Scarecrows and the Temple Owls. Then the town proper would reverse course and start to empty as everyone cruised out to see Concrete Blonde or Low Straight Jackets in concert at the Haunted Hayride, or went to the drive-in, or crammed the bleachers for the Scarecrows-Owls game. The town bars would be full, of course, but shopping would drop off after 5 o'clock, which was fine, since many of the vendors set up booths at the hayride and in a carnival line around the campus parking lot. Little Halloween was planned for months, and never in Pine Deep's history had the holiday been as important to the overall financial survival of the community as it was this year. Terry Wolf had been working to find ways of including the farmers in the town's non-agricultural activities so they could make a buck. Maybe a few bucks, enough to meet their mortgages and get through the rest of the season with their farm deeds still in their hands. For everyone, it was promised to be a great day in Pine Deep. It reminds me of the vignette in Trick or Treat where we cut to a massive Halloween parade, Shades of Mardi Gras. Crow and Newton head out to Dark Hollow, and though Crow is geared up for every eventuality, he's scared, and rightfully so. 
To add to the creepiness when speaking of the Bone Man, both men hear the sound of a blues guitar twanging on the breeze. The Bone Man is tinkled pink that he might not be as weak as he thought. However, things aren't looking good for our heroes now that Crow and Newton are heading into the heart of darkness. First of all, they've been spotted, and Ruger is tempting, tempted into seeking his revenge on Crow through harming and turning Val. Chapter 23. With 100 pages to go, Maberry continues to ratchet up the tension, with Crow barely keeping it together as they head closer to Griswold's home. Maberry, through Crow, references the legends of hauntings that go back 300 years. Now, this opens up the door to future non-Griswold-related stories, turning Pine Deep into even more of a Castle Rock analog. From what I understand, and um, just so you know, I actually tweeted at Jonathan Madbury last night because I'm recording this the day after I released my Ghost Road Blues review, and I, you know, advertised it on Twitter, and I, you know, wrote at Jonathan Madbury, and Jonathan Madbury tweeted back at me, which blew my mind and kind of sent me for a, a loop. Um, but maybe I'll, I'll ask him um, about a little bit more detail about what uh, what he has done with Pine Deep since the conclusion and where we can find those stories. That would be fun. From what I understand, um, he has gone back to the well, and, and that makes me very happy. So I don't know, maybe for next Halloween, I guess? I don't know. I'll track them down and review them? Who knows? If I had more time, I would do them upon the conclusion of the review for the trilogy, but um, unfortunately, uh, my time has been very, very limited lately. Um, and there was a period there where I was worried that I wasn't actually going to be able to finish the three books by the time Halloween rolled around. Anyway, uh, during their trek towards Dark Hollow, Crow finally speaks what Madberry has been teasing all along, the true nature of Ubel Griswold, that he had been a werewolf. But that's a simplistic version of what Griswold really is. And what I like about what Madberry brings to the table is that he plays upon all of our connotations of the classic monsters, but he spins it through a cycle of early European folklore, which gives it a much more fluid and weirder reality than Hollywood has conditioned within us. Chapter 24. Of all of the monsters in this series... Sorry. With all the monsters in this series, Madberry has a field day with the worst one of all. Mark Guthrie. This guy is so loathsome, it's almost impossible to read the scenes he's in. His constant complaining and growing anger directed at Connie, it's revolting, and it reaches a boiling point when he and Val have it out. It's during this scene when he's revealed to be a truly monstrous man, when basically stating that Ruger's attack on Connie was worse for him than it was for her, because he was about to be forced to to watch her have sex with another man. To Mark, there's no difference between consensual sex and rape. Sex with a woman voluntarily and involuntarily is the same thing, according to Mark Guthrie, which is horrifying, not because of Mark's philosophy, but because it's a philosophy that's still felt today. Now, I don't want to get too topical, but... I mean, just look at the Brock Turner rape case from this past year. Ugh. I mean, it's 2016, but when it comes to gender equality, we still have a long way to go. And Mark Guthrie reminds us of that. So when Val punches him, it's one of the more satisfying moments from the book. 
Chapter 25. Newton and Crow make it to Griswold's old house, only to learn that it isn't as decrepit as it should be. Recent upgrades have been made. Recent upgrades that they can't explain. They're almost killed when the roof collapses, and then they're attacked by a seamlessly endless wave of cockroaches that comes scuttling out after them. The chapter ends with Mark retreating to his father's barn, where lost in his thoughts, doesn't see the pale figure emerge from the shadows to claim him. Chapter 26. We get a bit of perspective on the villain side of things, as Rick and Ruger have, as as Vic and Ruger have as much as a heart to heart as they're gonna have, with Ruger admitting he can walk into sunlight without dying, and Vic admitting that he's not sure about all of the rules for the types of creatures that have been popping up lately. Meanwhile, back in the hollow, Crow and Newton are able to survive the horde of cockroaches by stepping into the sunlight generated by the magic of the Bone Man's blues. The two characters have to race back to their car by the time the sun sets. This is a conflict that I'll never get sick of. And I'm not joking when I say this. But I think of this type of thing every single day. Whenever I am out and about grocery shopping, getting gas, getting coffee, whatever whatever I'm doing. Whenever I'm out and the sun is about to go down, there's not a day where I don't think I have to get home before the vampires come out. So whenever I... Uh, see a scene like this enacted uh in in stories or movies i just i always get giddy because that's just where my mind goes then again i i also pretend to open grocery store doors with my mind so that's that's me chapter 27 this is a scene in which tow truck eddie almost manages to get mike again but mike outsmarts him and maneuvers his bike so that the wrecker loses control and crashes it's a great moment for mike and for us chapter 28 the conflict within Terry reaches a fever pitch as he begins a transformation in front of Sarah and struggles against the monster within. Remember, the evil that lies within. Before he can transform and eat his wife, he hurls himself from the window, presumably to his death below. Chapter 29. Ruger enacts his revenge as Boy emerges from the darkened barn towards Val and Connie. Boyd showcases Mark's ravaged body, which galvanizes Connie, who breaks out of her current state of passivity and helplessness into action, actually fighting with Boyd. Unfortunately, Val is forced to watch in horror as Connie's throat is ripped out, and despite the gunshots from Val's gun, Boyd approaches. Because Maberry kicked off the book with an extended look at the monstrousness and invulnerability of this creature, I can't see how Val's going to get out of this one. Even Ruger's invulnerability from the previous bo uh, book is dwarfed by the Terminator-like qualities of Boyd, who was tackled and assaulted by three strong farm workers who've rushed to Val's aid, but are soon mowed down violently by the raw animalistic strength of Boyd. Val manages to get a couple of headshots, which seems to do the trick, and after a brutal battle, it appears that Boyd is dead at last. Chapter 30 Boyd's failure brings conflict between Vic and Ruger, who blame each other for his string of bad luck. The man failed to kill the man, Ruger. I'm um, sorry, Griswold, uh, failed to kill Newton and Crow. Boyd failed to kill Val. Terry Wolf tried to kill himself. The bad guy's stranglehold on the town had, if only momentarily, loosened, allowing our heroes to take a group of air to regroup. 
sorry, a gulp of air to regroup. Epilogue. Newt and Crow discuss the events and the impossibility that had become a reality that Boyd was a vampire. And Newton sums it up when he states, we're all going to die. Okay, so let's talk about the Stephen Kingisms. So for one, we have the prophetic dream. Many of our characters have a dream of events that are going to take place in the future. It's something that we see in Stephen King's books. And we have the catchphrase, which um, is brought up a couple times, never let the assholes win. And then a lot of the Stephen Kingisms um, that pop up here popped up in um, Ghost Road Blues. So I, I won't... Uh, I won't spend too. I won't spend any more time on them because uh, we're already at, um, you know, over an hour and a half. So, okay, guys. Uh, look, a dead man's song. This was the first of the three books that I picked up, and thankfully, I read enough of Dead Man's Song to realize it was the the sequel to an original book. Um, so I'll always have a a soft spot in my heart for Dead Man's Song because this was my introduction to Jonathan Mabberry in the world of the of Pine Deep. So it's great. It's great. Uh, the, the, the dread and the aftermath balanced with the, the plot development that propels us into uh, Bad Moon Rising is masterful. Um, I mean, M Mabberry knows what he's doing. It's he's just good he's a good writer i don't know else how else to say it you guys should not be listening to me right now if you haven't read his stuff you should just be reading his stuff he's really really good so um i don't really have anything else to add at this point um i'm just very excited about getting to uh reviewing uh bad moon rising and celebrating halloween with all you guys so if you have if you haven't done so already uh, feel free to leave a review on iTunes because, as you know, I uh, can't do this without you, and I, I need your help on legitimizing the Stephen King cast as much as possible. So all of your incredibly kind words and reviews on iTunes goes a long way. Um, like I said, I, I have 91 reviews. It's incredible. Um, let's see if we can get to the triple digits, guys. So if you haven't done a review... Um, Let's, let's get a push to get 100 reviews because that, that would be a huge milestone for all of us. So thank you for that. Uh, feel free to write in at stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. Share all your thoughts on Stephen King and share your thoughts on Jonathan Madbury. Share all your thoughts on Halloween. Um, so just give me what you got, guys, because uh, I'd love to, to spread the word out there. And... Uh, Feel free to pick up any of the short stories that I, I, I referenced at the beginning of the, the podcast. You can find all of them uh, on Amazon. So thank you guys for all your support. And may you have long days and pleasant nights. And I will see you here next time where M-O-O-N spells Stephen King cast. Inhumanoids! Inhumanoids! The evil that lies within Down in the fiery of the earth where nightmares begin. Inhumanoids, inhumanoids, the evil that lies within.